This is the Chapel Real Estate Show, episode number 25. So in 2007, 2008, remember I said before, everybody and their brother was trying to sell a house. So there were 4 million homes on the market uh, during, uh, I don't remember the month. I, I, I can't remember the month. But there were 4 million homes on the market. Today, there are 1.16 million homes. That is clearly one-third or 25% of what the number was several years ago. So just that supply alone. So we had saturated market with inventory in 2007, 2008, whereas today we have an extremely strained market on inventory. Welcome to the Chapel Real Estate Show, your source for the latest real estate information so you can buy, sell, and invest with the best in Texas. Whether you're a first-time buyer, a current homeowner, or a seasoned investor, you've come to the right place. We're here to simplify all things real estate so you can achieve your goals of property ownership with your hosts, Daniel and Roger Chapel. What's up, listeners, and thank you guys for tuning in to the Chapel Real Estate Show, your source for the latest real estate information so that you can learn how to buy, sell, and invest with the best. I'm your host, Daniel Chapel, and I'm here today with my co-host, Roger Chapel, as usual. How are you doing today, Dad? I'm doing great. Hope everybody else is doing well, too. I know you and I could be doing a little bit better, so uh, we watched a YouTube video just yesterday that got us a little bit gassed up. What would you say, Dad? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, gassed up is a good word. We'll, we'll go with that. Oh man. So, so, um, there was this video that we saw that had a, to the tune of around 95,000 views talking about an Austin crash. I mean, this guy boldly states crash imminent in Austin. And this guy works with uh reventure consulting um, he's, uh, he's got a, a really great YouTube channel and I'm sure the video was made with so much great intent, but at the end of the day, this guy is not a real estate agent. He doesn't work in this market on a daily basis. And he quoted some statistics that we found to be misleading to say the least. So, um, this video is really all about talking about this video released by Nick Gurley. And, uh, we're going to talk about why an Austin crash is absolutely not imminent and we're going to share some statistics that completely combat what Nick shared in his video just the other day. So really excited to bring this content out to you guys. Hopefully it'll ease some of the concerns that he may have created for you. Or if you haven't seen the video, then um, you know I recommend you skip it and take a look at what you'll learn in this one. So um, dad, let's, uh, let's go ahead and kick things off with the Chapel Chunk. What is today's Chapel Chunk for our listeners? Yeah, so for today, we're going to go with, uh, I really appreciate it when people watch our videos uh, on YouTube or in our social media, other aspects of it. Please give us a like and uh, leave a comment. Uh, we do reply to the comments, and uh, I'd like to see your reviews. Leave us a review. Uh, we're trying to get this out there, and I think after today's episode, people are going to see that we're very serious about what we do, that we do the research, we find all this stuff, and I think they're going to be quite impressed with what they see. So I would like them to, uh, to reward us by giving us a, a review and then liking us, sharing us on uh, all the social media. I think that's, a, that's today's Chapel Trunk. Well, I've actually got one other chapel chunk that I kind of want to share a little bit, and that's just know who you source your information from. So we did a little bit of research on this guy, and uh, I mean, at the bottom line comes down to 
realtors should be the ones talking about the real estate market. And while the intentions are all well and good, his background and the statistics that he used and the sources that he used to, uh, to, to quote his statistics are not the most reliable sources. So know where your information comes from. Um, feel free to check out our website and look into us. We are legit. We do our research. We're realtors. We work in this market on a daily basis. You can see our track record for success. So please take a look into us. And as my dad said, um, you know, reward us with, uh, if, if you like what you see, leave us a comment, leave us a review. Let us know what you think about our content. Give us some ideas for more. We'd be happy to help you guys out. Um, so with all that being said, let's go ahead and get into today's first topic. So um, the, the statistic that was used in this video that we watched um, was a what's called the rent to price ratio. And to be honest with you, I don't really know what his true relevance is. Dad, I kind of want to hear what your thoughts were when you saw the video and you, he started talking about the rent to price ratio. What were your initial thoughts? Well, first of all, uh, my education has taught me that uh, when you're talking about statistics and data, uh, all of this stuff is, is it's open to interpretation. So uh, one of the things that I've learned about studies in particular is that a really good study probably asks more questions than it answers, uh, but that's on an actual study basis. In this particular instance, I don't think that's what we're looking at here at all. I think uh, the statistics that were pulled up uh, or referred to, and, and this guy, as I re recall, only uh, talked about his source one time, and that was Zillow. And uh, Zillow is just not as accurate as everybody seems to think it is. And there's a number of reasons why. And I'm not out here to badmouth anybody. I'm just literally going to call out the data as being inaccurate. So when the data is inaccurate, obviously the, the conclusions that are drawn off of that inaccurate data will naturally lead one to inaccurate conclusions as well. So I think uh, that was my first initial thought was, what in the world is all of this about? And where did this stat come from? I've never heard of a, a rent to price ratio. So initially, I was kind of skeptical of just the terminology in and of itself and how those two are related and how that is going to predict what a, uh, a market crash is going to look like. And I just couldn't draw the same conclusions as Mr. Gurley did. I, I just didn't. Yeah, I agree with you. So basically, to kind of give our listeners a little bit of perspective on what we're talking about. So what he called the rent to price ratio was basically the um, the amount that rent increases versus how it relates to the increases in sales prices. So, um, you know, the some of the numbers that he was talking about are, I mean, they are mind boggling, to say the least. I mean, 30% increase in sales price year over year in the Austin area. Now, in relation to the rent, so this is where the number gets kind of confusing if you don't know the reasoning behind it. So 30% increase in sales price. Now, rental rates have lagged behind. So rental rates have only increased an average of 3% year over year. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And that's what we're going to talk about. And these are some of the reasons that Nick left out of his video that he released with ReVenture Consulting. So um, like, like my dad said, it's all about the accuracy of the data. And the, the reality is, is there wasn't enough data that was provided in that video to be able to draw the conclusion that was drawn from that video. So, um, so why is this rent to price ratio important? Well, frankly, I don't think it is because... Um, something that was said in that video that I did not agree with is that um, market data or, or rather market trends follow rental rates. 
And I think that that's a completely false statement. Dad, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's the opposite of that. Uh, and like you've actually mentioned to me before, I'm, I'm going to steal your term. I think the uh, the rental market is reactionary to uh, the actual market itself. It's not the other way around. Rents do not drive what a sales price is going to be on a house. In fact, what drives sales prices in the home is very similar to what drives the rental prices. But what Mr. Gurley has left out is what is actually happening in, happening in today's market. And uh, I mean, I, I read a lot of the comments, too, on his videos, and there were some other folks that, that literally had the same questions I did, probably almost immediately. So, uh, I mean, it's it's obvious that this isn't quite what he anticipated. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, let's talk about a couple of the reasons why the statistics that Mr. Gurley talked about in his video are inaccurate. So, um, one of them is... Uh, and, and what I would say the biggest reason why these numbers are inaccurate is the eviction moratorium. So, Dad, can you explain to our listeners a little bit what is the eviction moratorium and how does that affect this rent to price ratio um, that was quoted in this video? Yeah, so with the moratorium, the federal government stepped in and uh, basically said that we could not evict anybody. And I say we, I'm a landlord, so I consider myself part of this group. Uh, but we were unable to evict anyone based on non-payment of rent uh, due to the fact that COVID had hit, many people were left unemployed, and it was difficult to make mortgages. It was much the same way as people who were involved in mortgages had to do the forbearance. So along with that lines, uh, the landlords could not evict uh, based on just that stat alone. All right, so with the non-payment of rent, during the moratorium, uh, landlords like myself were unable to evict anyone. Additionally, uh, people who were, uh, I, I'm assuming this happened, uh, it didn't happen with us, but um, I'm assuming that several folks, they wound up uh, at the end of their, their lease. Some of them possibly moved out. Some of them probably couldn't move out because they were unemployed and were unable to move. So uh, with that, the landlord couldn't raise their rents. Uh, they had to leave them in month to month. Uh, so I think that moratorium is literally one of the main reasons that, uh, to me, stifles or at least refutes what Mr. Gurley is saying. That is one major reason. So, uh, and I noticed uh, some of the comments, too. Some of these other folks picked up on that very quickly. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I just completely disagree with that 100%. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so uh, the other on, on the uh, non-payment of rent, uh, actually what happened with that is if a tenant is unable to pay their rent, then somebody has to pay the mortgage. And in a lot of these instances, we had a, uh, <clears throat> a landlord who still has a mortgage to pay, but he's not getting the rent. So now you've got the onus on the landlord to make the payment. And in some of those instances, uh, because their entire business is around their rental properties, they wound up having to apply for the uh, PPP program with the federal government. So once they were able to do that, then that kind of helped ease that pain just a little bit. But once that wraps up, then something's going to have to happen with these rents. They're going to have to go up. There's no two ways about it. The market has shifted to the degree that it's going to force the rents up. However, it's also cyclical, and the rental market is reactionary to what the actual sales market is. So it's not the other way around like we already mentioned before. So a lot of things, too, happened with Airbnbs. So the Airbnb I look at as also part of hospitality, where hotels, uh, taxi, uh, not taxi cabs, uh, rental cars, 
uh, air, airlines, uh, everybody in that particular industry lost a ton of money. I mean, once the once the, uh, the the economy was shut down, obviously people aren't traveling. They can't travel overseas. They can't travel for work. Uh, so with all of that, the travel industry really took a beating. Well, Airbnbs did as well. So what we saw with that is a lot of landlords, people who own these properties, these Airbnbs were filing uh, for the PPP as well and getting some uh, governmental assistance. So all of that will, uh, you know, some of the PPP was uh, granted, so they did not have to pay that back, which is good. Uh, I, I think for some businesses, they really did need that. Uh, however, with, with some, I don't think that was enough. Uh, so uh, we'll see uh, how that all plays out. But I think it's because of those specific problems that we're not getting an accurate picture of what the true rental market is, uh, especially based on what Mr. Gurley was talking about. I just completely disagree with uh, his assessment uh, based on flawed data. He just doesn't have the, the, the true pulse of what's happening in our market. Yeah, I agree 100%. So something else that um, that... I think was kind of left out of his video that um, that definitely plays a factor into this is is the fact that the Austin and Texas housing market has been grossly undervalued for a really long time. So our real estate market has lagged behind in terms of sales price from other parts of the country that are comparable for a very, very long time. So how do you think that plays into, you know, the, the final assessment that Mr. Gurley had in his video? Yes, I agree. And I, I think uh, you're very accurate in stating that. So one thing that he, he failed to mention is that the stats for 2021 are so skewed and so far out there. Uh, you talk about a true outlier uh, because we've seen a market increase just in the last couple of months, probably the last four months of somewhere around 20 to 30 percent. That is unheard of in this market. So just that 20 to 30% alone in the past four months skews that data and those stats to a degree that uh, is just completely, you have to take that data out and do the true comparison. And he didn't do that at all. Instead, he used that as to prove his point, which to me is inaccurate at best. I mean, I'm being very generous when I say it's inaccurate. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I can't think of a better segue to move into some of the stats that we wanted to talk about. So, um, you know, one of the big questions that people have about if there's a, mar a market crash coming is how does now differ from the last market crash in 2007 and 2008? So let's kind of dive into that a little bit. Um, and, you know, I think the biggest key factor, and this is what I've been telling a lot of people, is that to me, the biggest factor is that people are bringing cash to the table now versus back in 2007 and 2008, there was a lot less cash being brought to the table for closing and, and down payment costs. Um, there were different um, loan restrictions. So dad, let's kind of talk about the how those things affected the 2007-8-2008 crash and how today is different from those circumstances. Yeah, there's a number of different ways. So uh, we're getting our information, by the way, from the National Association of Realtors. So uh, they are the, the authority on this kind of market information and market data. Uh, these are obviously uh, real estate agents and true real estate professionals, uh, not just agents, but brokers and things of that nature that, that actually compile this data. And a lot of this data is coming from uh, MLS boards. Now, keep in mind that MLS is only as accurate as the information that gets input into it. So it does not account for homes that have been sold by a for sale by owner. Uh, a lot of times it does not count commercial properties. Commercial properties are used on a different type of a system. 
So uh, uh, most of the data that we're getting is uh, in regards to residential. So I'm not talking about commercial at all right now. Uh, that's a completely different animal. Right now we're going to talk specifically about residential and where this data comes from. So a lot of this data has come from MLS systems from, from, uh, from throughout the country. So with that said, in 2007, 2008, there were a whole lot of things happening that are not happening today. So a lot of lenders in, in during that time were loaning money to just about anybody that had a heartbeat. So the loan restrictions were, near, were not near what they are today. So it was as a result of that market crash that uh, we've seen such a dramatic change in the way uh, lending is done today. That's number one. Number two, adjustable rate mortgages. Adjustable rate mortgages are a big deal. So uh, back in 2007, 2008, the adjustable rate mortgage was typically lower and usually two points lower or so than what the average uh, rate was for a fixed rate loan. So back in 2007, 2008, the fixed rate mortgage rate was 6%. In order to get an adjustable rate, folks were jumping on that. It would be a rate well below 6%. But then after a year or maybe two years, uh, because they're only locked in for a very short period of time, those rates would go up. Well, they went up dramatically. So what happens when an interest rate goes up is that the, the payment is dramatically altered, uh, and, and it actually goes up quite a bit. So uh, depending on the structure of one's loan, then they could go up as many as two points. Two points. So what does that mean? If it's 6% mortgage, each uh, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, that's six points on a 6% mortgage, okay? So if it can go up two points per year, then you're talking about 8%. That is a dramatic increase. It could go up two points. So if you're locked in at a 6% arm, it could go up two points to 8%. Or if you're locked in at 4% and you can go up 2%, uh, then you're up to 6%. Now, the trouble with that is, those payments were not something that these borrowers expected. So now all of a sudden they've got this dramatically high payment that they have to keep up with. Well, of course, a lot of times people decided, you know what, rather than continue to fight this thing, I'm just going to let my house go into foreclosure. And they did in dramatic ways. And uh, at the same time, we had a flood of homes on the market. Everybody was looking to sell their home. I mean, the market was inundated with supply, inundated. And they had very few buyers. So the buyers that they did have, in order to entice them, lenders were giving anybody loans that wanted them. And they were offering the, these low uh, adjustable rate mortgages, which allowed many people to get into these homes. So before we move on from the, the adjustable rate mortgages and the foreclosures, I kind of want to touch on some of the statistics because we said we had some statistics for you guys. So let's talk numbers. So... Uh, Dad, back in 2007, how what percentage of loans were given out on adjustable rate mortgages versus the number of loans given out today? Yeah, so the adjustable rate mortgage was one of the biggest uh, issues that happened, and it caused the, the crash back there, so back then. So in 2007, we had, uh, let's see, I think it's 15% of first-time buyers, 15% were using the adjustable rate mortgage, whereas today... And mind you, the stats that we're using today marks uh, up to, I think it was March of 2020 or February of 2020. So we didn't use any stats after that because of the pandemic. So all of these stats that I'm, I'm giving you now are from 2020 up to March before the economy shut down. So with that said, 
uh, in, in February of 2020, there were, uh, it was 4%. So it went from 15% in 2007 to only 4% today. That is, a, or a year ago. That is a dramatic difference. So was it 15% of first-time homebuyers or was it 15% of all mortgage loans? I thought it was 15% of all the mortgage loans given out in 2007 and 2008 were on adjustable rate mortgages. That is correct. My, my fault. Wow. Yeah. 15% of all mortgage loans had adjustable rates versus today, only 4% are given out with adjustable rates. So that right there plays a huge factor in people's ability to keep their homes past that you know, that adjustable rate term, right? Because it was once they, they got to that point where those rates started climbing up, that's when people were losing their homes. So today, with the majority of homes having fixed rate mortgages, the risk of losing your home in the future is substantially less. Am I correct? That is correct. Okay. So um, the other number that you kind of started to touch on is the number of foreclosures. So you mentioned that, um, you know, when the adjustable rate mortgages started increasing, people were allowing their homes to go uh, into foreclosures. So to, to the tune of how many homes were in foreclosure in March of, of 2008? So in March, just in March of 2008, there were 234,685 homes closed on, uh, foreclosed on. Again, that's 234,685 homes were foreclosed on in March of 2008. However, in 2020, in, in uh, February of 2020, there were 48,004 foreclosures. So you look at that, that is a dramatic difference. I mean, a tremendously dramatic difference. So we can't, what I can't say is that it's because of the, the adjustable rate mortgage as to why we have uh, fewer foreclosures today. I, I can't draw that conclusion. But you can look at that stat and think, okay, that might have something to do with it, but that doesn't mean that it has everything to do with it. So, uh, you know, unlike uh, Mr. Gurley, I'm not going to take just one piece of data and draw a, a solid conclusion. Instead, it's a, it's a number of things that you look at to make, to draw your conclusion, not just one or two things. So that, that one is important to me. So the reason that number is important, so we, we chose February of 2020 because that was the month before COVID really started running wild in the U.S. So, um, you know, when COVID started, that's when the government stepped in and started creating all these different programs to keep people in their homes and all that. So the numbers that, that came from February 2020 through to, I mean, honestly, year to date, are still not very accurate because we still have the forbearances that have not come to an end. The eviction moratoriums, uh, they just came to an end. Am I correct? Or did they extend them again? I believe so. Yes. Those numbers are, are extremely important. And that's why we chose to, to quote that number of February 2020. Now, we do have another number for how many foreclosures there have been um, in April of 2021. So the reason we want to give you this number is simply to, to show you that we've done our research, but also to talk about how it's not a very good indication of what's to come in the future. So, um, so Dad, um, I believe it was in uh, April 2021, there were 11,810 homes in foreclosure. So substantially fewer than what we were talking about for the 2007-2008 um, so why is that number not accurate um, and not a good indication of what's to come? Well, literally, it's, it's not accurate because of the moratorium and the, and the uh, forbearance. So with forbearance, many folks, instead of having to foreclose on their home, went into forbearance. 
So uh, they were able to avoid foreclosure, which is awesome. However, uh, I'm telling you, with with the uh, pandemic the way that it was, it had such a dramatic effect on our market that I think drawing just that one month out and using that as a conclusion would also be just as false as what we're saying that Gurley did on his his, uh, video recently. So with all of that, uh, I mean, I think it's, it's a misleading statistic. So I would much rather compare before the pandemic hit to uh, 2007, 2008 versus now, because even now it's not an accurate picture. What we're looking at today is another outlier. Uh, however, when you take it maybe two or three, five years down the road, we will see how that, that had, a, had an effect on the rest of the market. But right now, because we're in the middle of it, we can't, can't say that. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> okay, so continuing on on why uh, today is different from the market crash back in 2008. So let's talk about how there are fewer homes being sold to investors. Well, there's a couple of things about the supply side of this that I think is important. So uh, before we jump into the investor side of it, I want to explain what supply means to this market. So in 2007, 2008, remember I said before, everybody and their brother was trying to sell a house. So there were 4 million homes on the market uh, during, uh, I don't remember the month. I I can't remember the month. But there were 4 million homes on the market. Today, there are 1.16 million homes. That is clearly one-third or 25% of what the number was several years ago. So just that supply alone, so we had saturated market with inventory in 2007, 2008, whereas today we have an extremely strained market on inventory. We have such a low market on inventory right now, it's not even funny. And that's one of the things, too, that Mr. Gurley did not even discuss at all in his statistical delivery about the so-called crash that is imminent uh, is simply about supply and demand. He seemed to have forgotten the basic principle of supply and demand. When you have low supply, you have high demand. Then that drives your market price, period. It's, it really is that simple. And then when you have so many people moving here, then that's going to create the high demand. And I, there, we can go on and on and on about this. Uh, but the bottom line is, right now, it's the, the inventory, I think, is one of the biggest uh, statistics that, that is helping uh, prevent a, uh, a bust or a crash in this market. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, I think what you were leading to with that is that the shortage in supply has kind of driven how sellers have chosen to sell their homes and also how uh, new construction builders have chosen to sell their homes. So how is that affecting the market in terms of investors and their purchasing power and, and how they, they get into these markets? Yeah, so investors are notorious for coming in and and offering a lower offer than what the listing price is. And the reason being is there's so many different matrices and different uh, calculations that an investor may use to purchase an investment property. However, in today's market, specifically in the Austin area, the prices have gone up so much that for most investors, it doesn't make sense to buy right now anyway. And this is where I kind of agree with Mr. Gurley in that because they're paying so much for a price on a home, it makes it much more difficult to bring the rent up to, to match that demand. So on that part of it, I think he, he might be onto something there. Uh, but again, that's only temporary. Uh, the other thing, too, is that when uh, uh, new home construction, uh, 
started seeing a tightening up of the market, there were a couple of things that happened. Number one, the lumber prices went through the roof. So did other materials. Uh, contractors were difficult to find. It's just kind of a, a trickle effect throughout this whole pandemic. So they decided rather than sell to investors, they literally were selling to owner-occupied homes only. So by doing that, then uh, I guess the there might be a feel-good kind of thing going on with builders where instead of selling just to investors who had the money to invest, they really did want to go to first-time home buyers uh, or market towards owner-occupied, which uh, is exactly what happened. Uh, so investors right now in this area, it's very difficult to find that deal that makes an investment worthy uh, uh, at the moment. Uh, but that, again, it's, it's temporary. This too shall pass. It'll, it'll come back around. Yeah, absolutely. Another statistic that I want to kind of start to get into is with first-time homebuyers. So we've been talking about how, you know, builders and sellers are, are more open to selling to owner-occupied um, rather than to investors. So uh, let's talk about how in 2007, what was the average down payment that, that buyers were using versus today? And also how much of the, the loan amount was being financed versus today? So in 2007, 2008, the loan amounts, uh, well, the down payment anyway, uh, was 9% on average. That's 2007, 2008. Uh, today, the loan, uh, the down payments are somewhere around 15, 16% on average. Now, mind you, there are a lot of folks that are putting more than that down. But on average, and this is a nationwide statistic, so... Uh, I think what we're seeing around Austin area is going to be higher than that. I think we're probably pretty close to 20% down, uh, much closer to 20% uh, because I've seen some other folks put in much more than that. Uh, and it's uh, we'll get to that part in just a few minutes as well. But then the other part of this is uh, in 2007, uh, first-time homebuyers were financing 100% of their home. 45% of first-time buyers we're getting 100% financing. That is unreal. And then today, we're looking at approximately 17% are using 100% financing. So, and uh, I think that statistic, though, is also a little bit misleading in that uh, the reason being we're seeing such a low number right now is because first-time homebuyers, to be honest with you, are not being able to buy on 100% loan in today's market. Uh, there's there's government-backed loans uh, that offer that are offered in this area. Uh, for the 100% financing. And typically what we're seeing is that a conventional loan will come in and they can pay more for the house. They also don't have to worry about appraisals. So I think part of that statistic is a little bit misleading uh, because, I mean, first-time home buyers, for the, at least those who are using 100% right now, cannot compete in this market. So we have cash and conventional buyers that are buying most of our properties right now. Not all, uh, but most. And I think we're going to start seeing that change, too, in the very near future. Uh, and the reason that is, uh, th that statistic is so misleading, is because we've seen such a dramatic increase in prices recently that appraisals hadn't been able to catch up to it. Well, now the appraisals are catching up. So since the appraisals are catching up, I think the market itself is going to kind of stabilize and once it stabilizes, we'll be able to see more uh, government-backed loans and buyers using government-backed loans being able to compete in today's market. So that's kind of on the bright side. I, I want people to think, that, uh, to understand that th this is on the horizon. This is one of the things that's going to prevent this so-called imminent crash that uh, Mr. Gurley talks about. 
Right, right. Because now you figure there are going to be so many more buyers that are going to be able to compete. You know, the 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 supply is truthfully, I don't see the supply expanding to the level that it would need to be in order for there to be that oversupply of homes that would stifle the growth in, in the Austin market. I just don't see that number on the horizon. What do you think? No, you're spot on. And one of the things that Mr. Gurley doesn't even pay attention to is the number of homes on the market. So just this morning, I checked, and we had 2,900 homes on the market. For our listeners out there, today is Friday. We are going into the weekend. Most of our homes hit the market on Thursday and Friday, leading into the weekend. This is a holiday weekend, July 4th. So we anticipate uh, there's going to be a lot of travel going on. People are still traveling, enjoying their summer, that sort of thing. But I anticipate uh, a few more homes hitting the market this weekend. But by Tuesday, I anticipate a dramatic drop because... A lot of homes are going to go off the market this weekend. Now, this number, that 2,900 number, is very important because this time of year, a couple of years ago, uh, we were talking over 5,000 homes per uh, or, or were on the market every single day in the Austin area. Every single day. It didn't matter the day. We were over 5,000. So our MLS, when we go to search homes, it will only let us see up to 5,000. There could have been 6,000, 7,000, 10,000. Who knows how many homes were on the market? It was not possible for us to be able to tell through our MLS. Right now, we can tell because it's not getting anywhere close to 5,000 a day. So that, to me, shows that we still have an extreme shortage of inventory. And with that extreme shortage of inventory, we're still going to see a high demand and, again, higher prices. Yeah, absolutely. One more statistic that I want to talk about before we continue on uh, and talk about how, you know, some of the other economic statistics are different now than what they were back in 2007 and 2008 is mortgage rates. So obviously that plays a big factor in, um, you know, I, I've heard, I don't remember if Mr. Gurley talked about this in his video, but I've heard in other videos um, and just, you know, speaking with my clients that people, people are concerned with what's going to happen when the Fed finally does decide to raise the interest rate. Um, so let's talk about what interest rates are today versus what they were back in 2007 and 2008 and how we see that impacting uh, the market in Austin. Right. So mortgage rates back in 2007, 2008 were about 6%, uh, and that's fixed rates. Uh, today, they're about 3%, and that's a give or take because these uh, rates do fluctuate on a daily basis. So today we're seeing mortgage rates that are at historic lows. They're, I mean, we, and it's been sustained for a long period of time. And these mortgage rates actually started taking a drop before COVID hit. So COVID only extended this just a little bit further than, than uh, uh, what is normal. So with that said, uh, I mean, at 3%, we are still at historical low rates. So even if rates were beginning to creep up a little bit, it is going to make a bit of a difference in buying power for the buyers because their payment is going to go up just a little bit. What does that mean? Well, the difference in between 6% and 3% is about $525 a month. That's a dramatic difference. So uh, keep that in mind that, you know, the, the higher the rate goes, the more you're going to pay into it. But right now, your buying power as a buyer going in at 3% as compared to what it was in 2007 is much stronger than it was then. Now, uh, the, the value of the dollar has also changed a little bit, too, over that period of time. So, I mean, that $525 isn't, doesn't mean the same today as it did back then. So we kind of keep got to keep all this in perspective. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, something else that again wasn't mentioned in the the reventure consulting video is how the job growth and the I guess you could say profile of buyers that are moving to the Austin area has not been taken into account. So, what is your take on that? What's the kind of job growth? What kind of buyers are moving here? How much money are they bringing? Those kinds of things. Yeah, so uh, what we're seeing in the Austin area in particular is such a high increase in technology. So the technological in, uh, industry has moved here in droves. And it's not just Tesla. It's not just Amazon. It's not just Apple or Google. It's all of the other residual companies from those, uh, those spinoffs, those little smaller companies that support those bigger companies. Those companies are coming here too. That being said, these are higher paying jobs. And not only that, they're moving from areas where they were making X amount of dollars and that money was only going so far in that particular region. And they're coming here to Texas. They're selling their homes that they've had there or their, their high rents. And they're coming here and doing a comparison. And it's much cheaper for them to purchase a home here than what it was to pay the rent where they came from. And not in all cases, obviously. I don't want to paint that broad of a brush. But what I do want everybody to understand is that we have a lot of money coming here to Central Texas area. And that money is equating to higher down payments and uh, uh, more money being spent on our economy in, this, in the Central Texas region. So for that, uh, that those are things that pre prevent this dramatic uh, market crash that Mr. Gurley seems to think is imminent. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, so, so let's kind of circle back around, bring everything around full circle. So um, we talked about at the, at the beginning how the rent-to-price ratio um, plays into the, the conclusions that were drawn in the video that we're talking about today. So um, you know, let, let's talk about that again. Rent increases, in, in my opinion, or really not even in my opinion, just from my observation, is that rent is very reactionary to the rest of the market. So, um, Dad, kind of wrap things up for us and, and give us your, your thoughts on this. Yeah, so rents are reactionary to the market itself. So, and the reason we say that is because as the market begins to increase and as we still have a higher demand and a very small supply, even in rental properties, uh, rental properties, when the price right fly off the shelves, and a lot of times, uh, realtors are not listing these things either. There are a number of websites out there now where uh, owners can list their own property. They can screen their tenants and they can do all of that stuff without having to pay a realtor to do all that for them. So I see that happening a lot as well. So uh, part of that data that was not included in Mr. Gurley's information was exactly that kind of thing, the, the for rent buy owner, if you will. Uh, that is not taken into account. But finally, uh, is every year, at least in Texas, and I want to bring this into the Texas market to make sure that people understand. Uh, I mean, Mr. Gurley is in Austin, so he should know this. And he didn't account for this either. So uh, property taxes. Property taxes in Texas are issued once a year. So the counties go around, and each county does their own individual assessment of the various properties. And then they issue what uh, they believe the property value is going to be, and your taxes are based on whatever that value is. And then the, the percentage depends on where one lives. So the percentage changes not just within the counties, but within the various subdivisions within a county. So, uh, I mean, just around my neighborhood alone, I know there are four different tax rates. And I can throw a, hot, uh, throw a rock from my house and hit four different tax rates. So it just depends on where one's property is. Now, with that said, just because I'm charging rent for a particular property in my neighborhood today at X amount of dollars, I can't just arbitrarily raise that rent. 
I have to wait until that lease agreement expires. And that lease agreement may expire this year. It may not expire until le- next year. It just depends on the tenant and the agreement that the realtor, uh, the, uh, the landlord had with that tenant. But once that rate has gone up, or once the property tax has been issued and that property tax has gone up, the insurance rates are going to go up on that as well. And people don't realize that that kind of follows suit. So when that happens, then you're going to see an increase in the rent. So when it comes time for that tenant to renew their lease or they move out and we put the house back on the market for another one, uh, then the rent is definitely going to increase. The trouble is that you're not going to see that statistic right away. And multiply that by the hundreds of thousands of homes in the Austin area that are for rent at any given time. So uh, that's just one of those little things that uh, Mr. Gurley did not account for in making his uh, dramatic assertion about this this so-called imminent crash. Yeah, I agree. Well, and I hope Mr. Gurley doesn't take this too personally. We're, <laughs> you know, we're we're really just trying to ensure that everybody is is fully educated on the factors that are impacting the market from the perspective of agents who are representing buyers and sellers in this market on a daily basis who have a track record of successfully getting buyers into homes and getting sellers top dollar for their homes. Um, so we're in this market on a daily basis. We see what's happening. We see how the trends are are you know coming and going. Um, and and something else is the the sub, I mean the, the there's an undersupply in rental homes as well. We didn't even talk about um, you know we strictly stuck in today's episode to the sales market in general, but I mean, there's an undersupply of rental homes. We've seen, um, you know, we have clients of ours that we've tried getting into rental properties that are in multiple applications and you're having to come in with highest and best rental offers. I mean, this is this is something that we see on a daily basis. So all of those things play into the, um, you know, I think Gurley, Mr. Gurley's video was really more of an indication of which markets are going to see the highest rent creases once things settle down uh, with this pandemic. What do you think, Dad? Yeah, no, I, I think you're spot on with that. Uh, and, and and to echo what you said about Mr. Gurley, this is not a personal attack on Mr. Gurley at all. Uh, uh, I guess if you want to call it an attack, it's an attack on the data uh, and the conclusions that he drew from that data. So uh, that's, that's where we're going with this. I don't want anyone to think or believe that this is a personal attack on him. We don't know him. Uh, but I wouldn't mind sitting down and having a cup of coffee with him one day and uh, discussing where he gets these these numbers from and uh, and maybe uh, between the two of us, we can come up with some better data. Yeah, and who knows? Maybe we can have him on the, the podcast one day. We can kind of collaborate and put something together. That's a great idea. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, do do we have any uh, kind of wrapping up thoughts? I mean, of course, as always, referrals, referrals, referrals. If there's anything we can do for you or your, your friends or family, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. Um, but, Dad, as far as the subject is concerned, any uh, any closing thoughts? Yeah, no, you hit the nail on the head with the referrals thing. You know me, I'm always going to push the referral business, uh, and I do it all the time. So, uh, And I'm not shy about it. Uh, it's, it seems to work for us quite well. So, uh, again, the referrals are very important. Uh, the other thing, too, is obviously, and, and I'll, I'll say this again, if you saw or heard something on this podcast that you really enjoyed, please share this with your friends. Give us a review. Hit the like button, all that kind of stuff. Subscribe to us. Uh, and then uh, uh, hopefully you'll, you'll get some more uh, information out of this. We, we, we want to hear what you want to know. So let us know. Absolutely. 
Well, again, it's so great to have you guys. Um, I'm going to put a little bit of a plug in for our next week's episode because I think it's going to be one that a lot of people are really going to want to hear. Um, so as we know, forbearances are coming to an end. And we would like to put a video together for you guys, a little podcast episode talking about um, what your options are. If you're in a position right now where you're in forbearance and you know that you're not going to be able to pay that forbearance back, now is the time to get on the market and get sold. Um, the market is, is extremely hot. There's no shame in, in you know, making your money back and taking that money and, and getting a new start for yourself. So um, we're going to dive into that on next week's episode, forbearances and what your options are if you're stuck in a sticky situation. So um, if you know somebody who's in that position or if you yourself are in that position, please stay tuned. Thank you guys again for tuning in to the Chapel Real Estate Show. We love spending time with you all and we will see you all on our next episode on Tuesday. Take care and have a great week. See ya. Thank you for joining us this week on the Chapel Real Estate Show. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend and leave us a review. Find us on social media at Chapel Realty Group and online at chapelrealtygroup.com. Until next time.